Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, today I have a wonderful guest that I've been dying to meet for several years now, and it's Liz Allen. Hi, Liz. Hi, Margot. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you. And you're in Chicago again, huh? Yes, sure am. I live, but we moved back. I've been living here since 17, 2017. Wow. Great city. I love Chicago mm-hmm. and improvisers heaven, I think. <laughs> oh yeah. I think so. I would agree with you. Although there's a growing contingent in California, like our good mutual friend, Jay Suko. Yes. And, uh, but otherwise it's Chicago. So I always like to ask the improv journey, but I'm not going to ask that right away. I'm going to do something entirely different with you. Oh, and great. I'm going to ask you how the pandemic affected your teaching and how you got into online and where you reluctant and just a little bit about that, please. Great. Okay. Uh, I have nothing but good things to say about the pandemic and my teaching, which is I feel guilty always with this experience. It was kind of amazing for me because I just leapt in. I thought if I'm teaching for all these years, I'm teaching people to be nimble, to adapt to change. I'm teaching uh, this idea of embracing what's going on around you. I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to embrace what's going on around us. I'd never heard of Zoom. I had been teaching on Skype with a group in St. Louis where I was here in Chicago and then they were together in one room in St. Louis. I didn't know, I had no idea if improv was going to work in these little Zoom boxes, but I thought I owe it to the students to jump in. If they're willing, I need to be willing. I'm not the only teacher who was willing to do this. Lots of teachers did. I was so busy during the pandemic. At one point, I think I had nine classes a week online. It was an amazing experience that I'm so grateful for. I think Zoom and improv online has made me a better teacher. I think it fixed some problems in improv that I never, like like group work, some things were solved uh, online, listening um, challenges were solved. So that some people that I met with online for a long time and then I met with again in person, they were better. They were better after their online improv. I could go on and on. I'm going to show you this, Margot. I have my wall of charts and I didn't expect today we, we were going to talk about this. <laughs> I finally started just using all these charts to teach online because I couldn't demonstrate things in person the way that I wanted to. So I just started drawing. And I did, I had done some chart prov in Vegas where people just couldn't see long form. So chart prop kind of took off. I, I'll keep talking for the whole hour about online improv. It has been nothing but a positive experience for me. I get it's not ideal, but I've loved it. Oh, me too. Me too. And I was doing Skype way before people were Zooming because I would Skype with other teachers around the country. So I love that chart. I want to steal that chart. I'm just going to reach in and take it. It's okay, beautiful. you can have them. Here you go. Yeah, it's it's a great idea. 
So yeah, we could talk about online forever because I've been running a group online for several years now for people with Parkinson's and oh, it's, it's really great. And they've grown so much. They're doing brilliant scene work and long form and all kinds of things like that. But um, yeah, I think there's so many possibilities. And I yeah. love the fact that you were willing to just jump in because I know a lot of people, professional improvisers I've talked, spoken with have said, well, I didn't really want to do it. I was going to wait till we could get back together again. And that's just nine classes a week. Well, that was the peak. Now that wasn't the whole time, but I was lucky that I took over some classes when IO went on pause. But, you know, I certainly don't mean any disrespect to teachers who didn't want to um, teach in this environment. You know, I do think it's personal preference. For me, the pandemic was so jarring that, I mean, it was for everybody. I, I can't claim that alone. But I needed improv in my life. I knew it was going to be a sanity touchstone for me, as it always has been. And the idea of not having improv around me, either doing it myself students or friends was very upsetting to me. So I was incredibly grateful that I got to um, have improv to sort of keep me afloat during that dark time. But I understand that online improv isn't for everyone. And I really respect the arguments I've heard against it and people's uh, not, a, a, not liking it, but it's also, it, that's okay. Not everybody has to like everything. You know, I don't like some improv in some venues. I prefer other venues. So we all have our preferences. You're right. And you're so generous and warm and kind. And I'm kind of bitchy. So that's all right. I will be I'll be my judgmental self, although judgment, <laughs> judgment doesn't work too well in improv. So, you know, improv is your touchstone. It's your go to. And, and tell me a little bit more about that, how you see improv as being so important. Maybe it's a spiritual thing as well. So can oh, yeah. we delve into that a little bit? Sure. Uh when I found improv way back in 1991, or when I first saw it in 1990, I didn't realize I was seeking ensemble. I didn't know that what was missing in my life was a supportive ensemble. I had no idea that people could work together seamlessly uh, with such a productive um, effect and, and be so successful together with no real plan and that the scaffolding of working together was yes and uplifting and supporting one another. I had not experienced that in my life much. Certainly it wasn't in my family of origin. So I didn't realize I was seeking togetherness. So improv gave me a confidence in myself because I was surrounded by a group of people that loved my ideas. I loved their ideas. My first team was named Frank Booth. We were together three and a half years at I.O. And that group support experience uh, sunk into my bone marrow. This idea that what the group creates is stronger than what the individual conceives of. And that uh, revolutionized my entire existence, I would say. Now, before that, I understand you were, did you work for Patheon? Ra Raytheon, I think. Raytheon, Raytheon. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. I, I lost my notes. Uh, <laughs> I like that. That'd be a better name for him. <laughs> what was that experience like? How long did you work for them and what were you doing? Well, I'm an engineer by training. That's what I, huh? I went to school in North Carolina State University. Woohoo! Well, Woo <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I graduated in 87 and then um, I wanted to get out of North Carolina and have an adventure and probably get away from my family a little bit. My parents, uh, they had a, they just had a tough, a tough marriage. It was not fun to be around. So I ended up in Philadelphia working for Raytheon and I was a consulting engineer. We were there in their division of um, builders and contractors that we would build large scale production facilities mm-hmm. for different companies. I moved to Chicago to work on a project for Abbott Labs. That's how I ended up in Chicago. It was completely wow. random. Wow. I know. So I loved uh, a lot of the aspects of that job, but what they required of me was to sit in a cubicle quietly and they would just sort of hand me papers and then I would hand papers back. And that's not a good fit for my personality. And even though I worked with great groups of people there, there were a lot of rules and it's a very rigid regimented environment, which it should be. It's engineering. It should be safety first. Right. But I was missing a creative sort of willy nilly approach to the world. I had another itch to scratch and I didn't know that it was improv. So what was your, where was your first improv show? How did you end up going to an improv show? My friend's friend, Eileen McArdle in Aurora, Illinois, was taking classes at Second City and said, would you like to come see my show? And I didn't even know, I didn't know what a Second City was. I didn't, my boss had said, you're kind of funny. You should go to Second City. And I was like, what's Second City? I had no idea. Wow. So I went and saw the show and I was blown away and I was immediately bitten. I had that experience that a lot of people speak of. Maybe you've heard of this where people just say, I watched improv and I thought, yes, I need to understand how to do this. And at the end, they did their spiel about signing up for classes. So I did. Second City used to have a place in Rolling Meadows in the suburbs and they lost my check. So Joyce Sloan's daughter, very sweet uh, daughter, called me. and and Cheryl. Yeah, I love Cheryl. Yeah. So she called me and she said, we've lost your check. I'm so sorry. Uh, you can't, or, or no, I forget how it was. I think I called to say, I haven't heard confirmation. It was all on the phone and via check. And she said, Oh, we don't have your check. We must've lost it. And I said, well, I wanted to take a class. And she said, well, they're full, but if you send a check again, I'll put you in another class in January. And then I thought, Oh, I'm not supposed to take an improv class. This is a sign, Liz. Don't do it. (laughs) Sign. (laughs) Right. And then Cheryl said, no, 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 just just show up in January, which was really an amazing thing because I met some of my longest term friends to this day were in that January class that I maybe wouldn't have met if I'd started in October. So it all worked out. It all worked out. Oh, that's so beautiful. That is a wonderful story. Who was your teacher? Do you remember who your first teacher was? Oh, I absolutely do. It was (laughs) Nina Vardalo. She taught, she wrote my big frat Greek wedding. She was my very first improv teacher of all time. And she was dating Ian Gomez at the time, who was also a performer out there at Northwest. And Nia was the perfect first time improv teacher because she was so supportive and she was so excited just that we were excited by improv and she would spend a lot of the time telling us about her latest commercial audition or something and in the city and it was like a slow reveal of a world that i knew nothing about so i'm so grateful that nia was my first teacher because it it was she was not this hardcore intimidating she was very warm and fuzzy teacher 
Wow. So um, you mentioned the word bitten, and that was exactly my experience. I had seen Who's Lionel on TV, but when I went to my first improv class, it was like, bling, my brain kind of exploded, and oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for all my life. Yes, you had that same, yeah, it yeah. is. It's like you're taken over by a fever. Right, right. And then I wanted to take as many classes as I possibly could, which was hard here in Naples, Florida. But being in Chicago, yeah, you had a, a lot. Um, you know, Will Lura, I don't know if you know Will. Oh, I do. Yeah. I know him well, hey, yeah. There's a I festival. Will. <laughs> there's a festival. Yeah, I will. There's a festival in Sarasota every year. I love it. And uh, I started going to that right away. So I had great teachers like Craig Kukowski and wonderful people. And Will is a great teacher. So um, now, did you ever have really tough teachers? You mentioned people that might oh, be a little yeah. rigid. Yes, I had some really tough experiences. Uh, I found, uh, you know, am I supposed to name names here? Or maybe we'll keep it vague. What do you think? It's up to you, Liz. It's up to you. I want to know. We can talk later. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's, what's funny to me is that my the person I give the most credit to, to what I learned about improv and teaching improv is the most controversial figure ever, which is Del Close. He's so controversial. I still have my notebooks from his classes. I took his class three times. He directed me in three shows. He was by far the least personally connected teacher I've ever had. I had no personal connection to him whatsoever. I didn't go out afterwards and hang out with him like some students did, but I hung on his every word creatively. I found his teachings about group unparalleled. He would describe something in group. We would do it in class. And then I would go watch his group, The Family, which is this amazing uh, legendary group at IO. And I would see ensemble in practice. But Dell was a tough teacher because he was not warm and fuzzy. And he is, you know, he's not highly regarded uh, today. But I but I will, will stand by... I learned so much from him, but it was a difficult environment. I had a couple of other teachers that were not. Um, I understand that about Dell, but there's some people who stand by him no matter what. I mean, he had rough times with his addictions and mental illness and, I don't know, narcissism maybe. Um, but I know a lot of people attribute him to giving them the best classes they had. So you're not alone in that. Well, yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's been my experience too that, but I mean, he was not, I didn't also, I didn't take classes for an interpersonal experience with this man. I took right. classes to learn this art form and he taught yes. it. One thing I will say that's interesting is I don't know if this is an advantage or a disadvantage on my part, but coming to improv from Raytheon where I was one of maybe five female engineers and you know, there was a, a just, a mass of men engineers. I was one of, I mean, this was the late eighties. There were not many. And I literally had a man say, I can't have Liz on my team because women have no mechanical aptitude. So, I mean, I faced like some serious misogyny in engineering, but I also found lovely, wonderful people. And, and I had a fantastic experience overall, really, but it was a lot of speed bumps. And I knew because I knew from engineering school that this was going to be a little bit of a tough road and I needed to maintain my uh, belief in myself and move forward in a field that was um, 
slightly new terrain. I'm being long-winded. My point is when I came to improv and everyone said how terrible Dell is, I was like, he's nothing. Have you met my boss at Raytheon? Like <laughs> Dell was kind of like, a, I mean, but maybe I'm, maybe my bar is wrong, but I just, I was like, improv was the most accepting, amazing environment I'd ever been in. And I think it's because I came out of this white male patriarchy of engineering that was a rough, a rough road at times. Well, when you came into improv, it was still pretty much white male dominated. You know, I honestly, I got to tell you, that was not totally my experience. I'm going to oh, tell okay, you. Great. I great. mean, you're my, my first teacher's Nia. I see these really powerful, wonderful uh, female performers on stage. I was able to watch Amy Sedaris and Tracy Thorpe. And in my generation is Lily Francis, Tammy Sager, Stephanie Weir. Uh, I watched Jackie Hoffman, um, Susan Messing, like, I actually, I, I don't know if I was just so grateful. They seem like a lot more women than engineering. I'll tell you that. I was so thrilled that I had a lot of female, uh, um, you know, people to admire. I'm just telling you my personal experience and everyone, you know, says that my generation was filled with some really nice men, which I think it was Paul Grandi, Kevin Mullaney, like the nicest people in the world. I'm Steve Mosqueda. I'm missing a lot of people. It's a, and you know what? As Oscar Wilde said, all generalizations are bad. So I'm guilty of a generalization. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that it wasn't. It, it, I mean, most absolutely most of my teachers were white men, without a doubt. After Sharna was Miles Stroth and uh, Dell. And then I had Neil Flynn, but I, I found them to be great teachers, but I also had teachers that were my peers and they were so strong and so amazing and so dedicated to this art form. And then right behind us, next generation, next class below me, here comes Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Like I felt my experience going all the way back to the early nineties was very female centric. And maybe that's just because I was looking for it and was so grateful. But again, compared to white male Raytheon, improv was this, was a refreshing, you know, breath of air. It's so cool. Now was musical improv ever in your, uh, no, no, <laughs> no, I can't sing. You should hear me sing. It's terrible. If you want me to sing, it'd be awful. Everyone will stop listening. I don't sing. I do dance, but I don't sing. You dance. Where'd you learn to dance? I did ballet my whole life growing up, ballet and tap. You'd never know it to look at my posture right now. I did point for years. You'd never wow. know it. Wow. Yeah. So, and I mean, so I was used to the stage. I had been on the stage a lot and I had done some plays in junior high and high school, but most of my performance has been dance until improv. So do you still dance when you perform? I mean, if somebody initiates you know, the tango, I might try it, <laughs> but no, not really. No, not really. I, I mean, I've always marvel at Baby Wants Candy and all the musical improv I've seen. Our musical director for Frank Booth, our piano player was John Fisher and he was amazing. And I, I always wanted to lay on that piano and sing a ballad, but it wouldn't have been pretty. Well, you know what they say about musical improv? It's not about the voice as much as it's about the commitment. I know. Everyone, it's so funny. Everyone says that, right? And then uh, uh, I don't think I would have been wanted at those auditions. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. That's great. So now, um, how long had you been doing improv before you started teaching? 
a few years, maybe three or four, I think it is. I've got it written down somewhere. I think it was, you know, things moved much faster way back when in the early 90s because there were so many less people. Right. Uh, when I got on Frank Booth and I had that group experience in that team, I remember thinking, I'd like to teach this someday because it's so special and wonderful. I'd love to share this experience. I had a couple of kind of just rough classes with a couple of other teachers. And I thought if I ever get good at this art form, I'd like to teach it and kind of be compassionate and also direct. I'd like to think I have been, I've made my mistakes along the way. I've certainly made a lot of teaching mistakes and those have been my, my biggest learning moments for me. But it was a few years after finding improv that I'd said to Sharna, I'd like a class or a team. And, and she said, oh, no, there's too many coaches and people in front of you. You'll have to wait. And then I think I, I just pestered the heck out of her. And I got my first team, Valhalla. That was a dream uh, to, to coach. So it was just a few years. Wonderful. And I think we learn through our mistakes. I, oh, yeah. You know, I was a horrible teacher in the beginning and um, horrible, although I've been doing teaching for a while in terms of workshops and, and I did a lot of play workshops. I was trying to new games way before I got into improv. So um, but, you know, I look back now and I kind of cringe, but we do learn from our mistakes, however painfully that is, I think. Yeah. I, you so, know, and I will say, I, in some ways, I think I was, it, the beginning, I was so humbled and worried. I remember I had my nine-page curriculum when I first started teaching level two. Susan Messing gave me that curriculum um, over a conversation of coffee of three hours. So the first time I taught it, I'm, I'm going page to page. And I remember thinking, I'll never be able to teach without the notes in front of me. And of course, that day did come, but I've always found my mistakes came when I got too full of myself. For me, I found my mistakes came uh, when I was feeling a little cocky. I always had to have a, I need to have that reminder of humility always. Well, that is for sure. And when I start thinking I'm so grand, that's my failure. That's when I start really failing. <laughs> right. So special, look at me. No, um, but having humility is so important. And that's why, you know, I refer back to Jay Suko because I think he has so much humility oh, as he does. to offer and he's such a great teacher. So when did you meet Jay, I wonder? Oh my gosh, I met Jay right away. Uh, in that, when I started taking classes in January, he was in a concurrent level one at Rolling Meadows way back when in 1992. Right. And um Okay, Bob Dassey formed this group called Waka Malaka. It was all from the training center. It was a group of people that he wanted to improvise and write sketch. It was his brother, Ed, another man named Ed, Judy Fab, Jans, who sadly passed away, Jay Suko, and me. And we had an understudy, Kelly Ruda, who's also passed away. Very sad. Mm -hmm. So Bob had this idea that we were going to improvise and write our own sketch. And he convinced Second City to let us have their dark night Monday night. And so we all started rehearsing and writing sketch. I mean, we were in the training center and it was so uh, forward thinking and visionary of that Bob Dassey to say, let's just do it. And Jay and I got to know each other in that group, Waka Malaka. And to think that I had this really important 
foundational experience that I just stumbled into because Cheryl lost my check and I met all the other level one people in January of 92. Like it all was amazing how it worked out. So Jay Suko and I, uh, and then we all decided to go into the city and take classes at this place called Improv Olympic. And we would meet in the parking lot and Jay would drive up from Flossmore. Like it was just, I look back now, it was so ragtag, but it was so meaningful. So that's how far back we go, a really, I mean, to the very earliest possible days. Oh, that's so beautiful. And having that collaborative experience now, is, is sketch writing something you do or something no. you teach at all? No? No, what's funny is that I started at Second City and, <clears throat> excuse me, I was in that group. I do not consider myself a really strong sketch writer, but I love to direct sketch. I have directed a lot of sketch shows and I love directing because I like taking a sketch show and weaving it together like a piece of long form improv. My most, uh, 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 let's see, how shall I say it? My, most of my focus has been on long form, form improv. I teach long form. It's very hard for me to adjust to a short form curriculum because I'm always looking for callbacks and connections and collisions and ways to make a piece really cohesive. So long form improv has taught me how to maximize, you know, however much time you have up there. In my day, it was 45 minutes. Now it's 25 minutes to do a long form. But what I like to do is take the assets of long form improv and bring them into directing sketch. But I'm not a great sketch writer. Don't please don't ask me to sing or write a great sketch. Okay. Well, those are the first two things I'm going to ask you. Oh, I mean. darn it. I knew it. <laughs> so um, you mentioned, you know, you have a lot of self-confidence, but you also mentioned your family wasn't, it wasn't the Brady Bunch, although no, that was a good no. show too, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, where do you think that confidence came from? Well, that's interesting. I appreciate the compliment that you see me as confident. Thank you. I would say it's uh, part of it is uh, I'm the youngest of four and I'm the youngest by a big decade. My mother had three, my parents had three babies and then they had me. And I think I learned very early that I better pipe up, speak up, be loud and heard or, uh, you know, I, I was an afterthought. Every, you know, especially my dad was done raising kids and then here comes this other kid. So I think I had to fake confidence just to get heard, frankly. Yeah. I will tell you, if I have a shred of deep confidence, I did get it a little by folding myself into my academic studies when I was in junior high and high school. It was an escape. My mother was a, a country club alcoholic is what I like to call her. And she got worse and worse when the others moved out. And she saved, in my opinion, some of her most dramatic alcoholic moments for my uh, teen years. So I would lock myself in my bedroom so I wouldn't have to listen whether she was uh, climbing up on a ladder to clean the top of the cabinets drunk as a skunk. And I would just sort of escape into studying. And that is that did build my confidence because I got reward. It's a very structured environment. Um, but, you know, I've been teaching now, what, 20 some, I've been in improv 31 years. I've been teaching like 28 of 27 of those years. As you know, once you do something for a really long time and you realize you're kind of good at it and then you work to get better at it. And I think I've worked very hard teaching. I've taught a lot. 
you do build some confidence just by sheer time and dedication. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, for almost 40 years, I've worked with adults who were children of alcoholics. Oh, really? Oh, my. Well, all right, everybody, buckle up. We're going to be here five hours. Okay. And, you know, um, again, it's, it, there's a kind of a generalization, but we look at the, especially if it's a family of four, maybe, there's different roles they take on. And it sounds to me like you were the quiet child. I mean, were you funny? Did you get people to laugh or things like that? Or oh, did interesting. You put your head into the book. Well, I would say uh, I kind of did both, actually. I think I did escape into studying, but honestly, I was the loudest of all, still am to this day. I'm the smart ass clown. I mean, they're all funny. My family is funny without question. And I realized that my family also had the underpinnings of a great improv team, except they said no and denied everybody. Left right, 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 right. The joke of my family is I say that my dad used to say, I'd say, dad, would you like a turkey sandwich? And he'd say, no, I'm going to make myself a turkey sandwich. Like nothing could be someone else's idea. Right. But <laughs> if I could get my dad to laugh, it would diffuse the tension of the moment. Yes. And getting my dad to laugh was a, was a goal of mine as long as I can remember, maybe even three. Like I, if I could get my father to laugh, then the family would ease its misery. Yes. And still to this late, to, to this day, getting, you know, my older brothers, getting them to chuckle. If I can see like they're irritated by, I mean, they're not really always irritated, but it's just relieving to me to get them to chuckle. And then my sister is a goofball. She's so much fun. And we giggle a lot, but we had this background of stress from the alcoholism and the enabling. Yeah. So one of the things is sometimes there's a kid in the family that's called a scapegoat. They're always getting in trouble. And all of these roles help take the focus off of the drinking and the alcoholic member. Right. And, um, it, it's kind of fascinating to me. But you also escaped the genetic predisposition of having an alcohol problem. Or did you? <laughs> well, I've never really enjoyed drinking because I was so against it. Uh, because of what I'd seen my mother do. However, I did have fun drinking. And there were times that I back off drinking and I would say, I, I, that's, a, that's enough. That's enough of a pub crawl. You know, I, oh, we had so much fun drinking, so many fun parties. But I've, I had to go on a medication that I wasn't allowed to drink. And, and that's been fine. I haven't missed it. But I will tell you this. I mean, there's alcoholics up all the family tree branches. It's pathetic how much alcoholism goes back three and four generations that we know of. I've never thought I got the addiction gene until I lived in Vegas and I gambled for the first time in my life. I'd never been at a table. I'd never been at a casino. We moved to Vegas in 2005 and I, I got clammy hands, an elevated heart rate. I would start to like literally lick my lips. Like, can we, can we go play three card poker? And I think if I had st stuck with gambling, I think I would have developed a problem. I quit. I sat down one time to play three card poker in the middle of the afternoon. And I had, I think it was $40. And I won the first hand and I won $600. And my husband was standing behind me. And my husband is astounded. And he can't believe the hand I have. And I'm like, is this good? Is this good? And the Dealer's telling me to be quiet, you know, and then I won the $600 off of 40. The irony is we just had a car break down and the cost to fix it two days earlier was exactly $600. Wow. wow. 
So I won the $600. But what was interesting is I started to sweat and I said to my husband, I'll take a cab home, honey. And he goes, no, no, you won't. No, you won't. So we left. But what was interesting was that the dealer called over the pit boss because, you know, this woman who's claiming she doesn't know how to gamble just won 600 bucks. So they were immediately concerned. Maybe I was counting cards, which is so funny to me. So they changed out the dealer. They did all this rigmarole. They slowed everything down. We took the exact $600 from the Bellagio and gave it to the mechanic. And I've never gambled since because it's interesting that you say that, Margot. I thought to myself, I think I would have a problem if I ever did it continually. So I, after watching my mother, I just stopped. That's beautiful self-awareness. Well, I don't know. Thank you. I don't know, but I'll tell you. God, yeah. I'm not, I'm not any perfect person, but I, I'm not, I'm not, but I, I think that some addiction gene without a doubt runs around our gene pool. And luckily you're addicted to improv. And so an addiction, some people say an addiction is a toxic relationship to a toxic substance, but in your um, I think for you and me, we're addicted to playing and having fun and collaborating with other people. So it's not a toxic substance. It's a wonderful substance. That's beautiful. I've never heard it described that way. I, I would agree. I, I mean, I think it could be toxic how you use anything, but it, but it hasn't, it isn't for me. I mean, I think it's a lovely art form that I feel lucky to have found and be able to dedicate so much time to. Well, I know you've become very popular now. I'm not trying to suck up to you too much, but very popular. And before we started the podcast, I mentioned you were teaching um, online at Vintage Improv for a couple of sessions, several sessions, I think. And every time I tried to sign up, it was immediately full. Thanks. So that's another reason I really wanted to get to talk to you. Um, and I think we're at a point where maybe we could play a little bit. Oh, I would love to do a scene. Let's do it. All right. Go ahead and say it, Mildred. Go ahead and say it. Sally, you look really sad. I'm struggling. I'm not doing well, Mildred. Go ahead and just, I knew you were going to comment. I'm really not doing well. Sally, I can see you're not doing well. I mean, no makeup, your clothes, you have a coffee stain on your right shoulder. I, I don't know how you even spilled coffee on your right shoulder. I'm, I'm concerned. Grief is difficult, Mildred. Grief is difficult. Everybody wants me to just pull through. It's been five years. It's difficult. I agree. I mean, I went to those support groups with you, Sally. I heard other people. I understand. And five years is a long time. We were engaged to be married. And he... Died. No one understands what it was like to be on the precipice of joy. And he died, Mildred. You have success. You have a family, grandchildren. 
I've been robbed. You know, you have been robbed. And I do have all those things, but it's not that great. I mean, you know, children. It's not that great. Oh, do I have to hear this again from another married person? Your three homes aren't that great. It is nice having three homes. And I've got to admit, having a full staff in Palm Beach is, is really nice for me. Um, Sally, you could uh, you could come visit sometime. You know, we don't have to just talk on the phone like this. Well, I would love to come visit sometime, but you need to be sure to tell the security guard because the last time I was there, the security guard, you forgot to put my name, forgot to put your own sister's name in your own security guard house. Sally, I don't know. Sally, it was because, you know, the car you were driving in, um, your demeanor that night, uh, you know, you were, please, I accept, I accept responsibility. I was definitely at fault. I should have had your name on the list, but he didn't think you were the type of person that would be coming to my home. Well, go ahead and admit that the reason we don't meet in public is because you're embarrassed of me. The reason, the real reason. Sally, I am embarrassed. Of, I am embarrassed about you. And, and maybe by being honest with you, you're going to get it now. Your life isn't over. There's plenty of suitors. I know. I mean, there's, there's a matching service. There's online things. And you could have another life. Or you could continue to grieve. I will have my other life when my grief has concluded. My grief is not concluded for Gerald. You know, Sally, I did have my doubts about Gerald and I didn't really want to talk about it before because it was too soon, but I really questioned some of the things he did, you know, like driving at 120 miles an hour down the Garden State Highway. That didn't seem really safe to me. He can't help it. He was a contender for NASCAR once. Yeah. And was that even true? He was a contender? Or he told you he was a contender? Well, why would Gerald have lied to the love of his life? Me. Why would he have lied, Mildred? Sally... I haven't been able to tell you this until now, but I think the time has come. You, you weren't his only woman. I mean, I became aware of his family in Iowa. He, he had a whole family in Fairfield. I've heard these rumors and I am positive that had we been able to make it to the altar, he would have had a fresh start with me. That's, what Gerald would have done. It would have been amazing. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about your, what did you say? You're not happy. You're unhappy. You're sort of happy. Well, you know, James is not the easiest person to live with. He's very demanding. I mean, and he's so rigid, like once a month on Thursday, we have to have the dogs groomed. 
And I have, and he makes me call the dog groomer. Can you imagine? I can't get my secretary to do it. I have to call the dog groomer. Hmm. <laughs> yes, that sounds miserable. Yeah. It's a lot of little things like that. Or it big is. Things, you know, and he, he just, uh, well, he's overly affectionate. Pardon me? Well, he's always wanting to hug me and kiss yeah. me and and tell me how special I am. And, you know, I, I just, it's too much. It's too much. You know, I, I have my fine points, but I'm not that special, James. Let it go. Mildred, do you remember what they said about us at the orphanage? Two sisters, most likely to succeed. I've let the orphanage down. I've let you down. You've, you've let me down. It's true. But there's still time for redemption. You know, Sister Mary Margaret at the orphanage, I was in touch with her recently. We give a donation every year. There's actually yeah. a building um, named after us. Um, uh, but... You know, it's not too late. You are the most likely to succeed. And you're so young. You're only 24. You don't understand what it's like being such a failure and an engagement widow at 19. It was terrible. It's been terrible. It, it was tragic. And as your older sister, I was there for you. I, I attended all those ceremonies, the ones you had when you, you know, when you put a boat and burned it in the water. I'm not sure what that was about, but I was there. Protest, protest. It was about protest. And it was a miserable way to die. I understand that. I understand that. He had principles. When I go by and see the building with your married name on it, I might throw an egg or I might bow in reverence. You know, I, I prefer the bowing if I must be honest, but uh, you know, I, I don't know where you'd find that egg anyway, if you're just walking down the street and all of a sudden there's the building. Sometimes you're interesting. Maybe what you need to do is go on one of these date sites and look at what's out there. Because Gerald had a lot of positives, but he also had a lot of negatives. I mean, you know, he was so young and yet he didn't have any hair. And his teeth were so bad. I mean, can you imagine having children with that? Oh, oh, oh now my grief has started anew. Yes, I could imagine having children with Gerald and I would have loved it. I would have loved it completely. And I want you to know, I see, I see your massage therapist trying to get your attention in the corner of your eye. I see that your allotted time for talking to your sad sister is almost over because you have to get your neck worked on. Well, of course, I have to stay in shape. Now, remember, I love you and I support you unconditionally. Your name is on the guest list when you want to come over. Really? We Anytime, Mildred? Any night of the week I'll be in the I'll be in the gatehouse. Any night of the week I can show up. 
I might take a cab. I might walk or a bicycle. You'll let me in your house. The gatehouse will let me in. Yes, almost every day, except for mm -hmm. Saturdays and Sundays and Wednesdays. But otherwise, you're free to drop in any time. I'm so sorry, Sally. I got to get my neck fixed. That's fine. That's fine. I'm going to go find some shoes. You find some shoes and you walk in them proudly because you are a survivor. Bye. Bye, honey. Well, that was fun. That was super fun. Thank yeah. you, Margo. Yeah, you're welcome. Wow. My day has been made, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. Ditto, Margo. Thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of you wanting to talk and ask questions. It's always nice somebody cares about, uh, you know, somebody else's life. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so interested. And, you know, I'm very interested in improv history as well. So talking about Dell and being back there kind of early, not the earliest, of course, but um, Joyce, uh, Joyce Sloan was still there, wasn't she, when you were? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, you know, and Marty DeMott was one of my teachers. Oh. Like it was, and you know, what's interesting too, is someone just recently gave me uh, a pack of teaching cards of Viola Spolins that I'm so grateful to have. And they're just some of her random exercises from way back when. And I am so appreciative that I learned from people who knew her, studied with her, learned from her. I'm so appreciative to be in Chicago with her history with Hull House. Like I didn't know when I started that I was stepping into this kind of deep social experiment from yes the early 20th century. And what's interesting to me is I didn't realize I was going to be a part of a, a wave of an art world. I had no idea, Margot, right? You never know when you do these things. And I, I realized looking back that maybe I was also hungry to be a part of something different. And engineering was, you know, I mean, I feel like I was maybe the first generation of people who, of women who were in engineering and it wasn't as big a deal or it wasn't so unusual. And now it's very common. And I love that. And I love that I've watched this art form go from uh, a small amount of people in Chicago to you and I talking here today. And also one of the last classes I taught in person was, was 16 women and one man. So I have watched the evolution. Yes, yes become even more, but, uh, female centric, but, to, or people who identify female, but to have this Viola Spolin teaching cards is exactly what you just said. I feel honored to be a part of this history. Yeah. Now are you talking about the file fold, the little box with all of her games in it? Yeah. Isn't it wonderful? And you know, I, 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 I've worked with Aretha Spolin Sills and I know, I know she's wonderful. And uh, that, you know, um, Viola would read from the book. And so sometimes I read from the cards. I know. It's a great teaching tool. Wonderful. I know, I love her book. And you've been to Hull House, I imagine. Have you been there? No, ever? I've never been. I'm embarrassed to In say Chicago. I've never been, but I've looked yeah. at it. In pictures. Yeah. Well, when I made my pilgrimage, I was studying with Jimmy Corain one time and I went to Chicago to study with Jimmy. That was a big deal for me. Amazing. And um, 
So I went there. And of course, as a social worker, I feel all this connection, the mother of social work, the mother of improv. And here I am with this incredible history and tradition behind me. It's so blessed. Well, I mentioned Jimmy because you and Jimmy wrote a book together. Didn't we you? sure did. Improvising yes. Better, a guide for the working improviser. Yeah. How, what was that process like? Oh, it was amazing to learn from him. So what's interesting to me is I watched, we watched the family a lot and we watched this team called Jazz Freddy. Uh, so many heavy hitters, Teresa Mulligan, Dave Keckner, Jimmy. I mean, there's so many people I'm forgetting and I apologize because I should have the list memorized, but Jazz Freddy was this amazing group and they would play at the live bait on Clark. And Jimmy, he's so funny but he was also so uplifting like he would be on stage and support and get underneath someone else's ideas and that was the same with the teams that we all revered like Mr. Blonde you mentioned Craig Kakowski was on Mr. Blonde and then he ended up coaching Frank Booth and to watch these people get underneath one another's ideas and Jimmy was someone that I never thought I could even talk to at a party right like you're a baby improviser and you see them and you stay in the corner and you barely wave because you're so intimidated and overwhelmed by their talent. So did I ever think 20 some years later, Jimmy and I would teach a class together or write? Never. And the process was great because I learned so much from his experience, his viewpoint. We both had very similar views on group and support. We never disagreed about uh, the obligation of the ensemble member to get off that back line and help. Right. We did have different views sometimes on the emotional heightening of a scene or on maybe how much a character delves into something and when, but I enjoyed that we had some creative differences because it made an interesting spark of a collaboration between yes, the two yes. of us. Yeah. Having some different points of view helps to spice it up. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's got a brilliant mind. He's really fun. He's really fun. So what was the process like, though? I mean, would you sit down for a few hours each week and get together? Yeah. Or how did you know? No, we bo both go off and write on our own and then send it to the other. And uh, what happened was teaching our class together. We did these individual assessment workshops and we would come up with themes where where we both would look at each other and say something like, uh, you know, why are these people hesitating to talk? Why are the why do we see a trend of hesitation? And this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. We saw some editing, self-editing going on. And we assumed it's because the stakes had gotten so high for improv that we weren't expecting when we both started. That there was a sense sometimes in the late 90s that you were being possibly looked at from a scout in the audience for a TV show. And this was new pressure. This was a new concept. I mean, when I started watching improv, like I, I watched Adam McKay improvise. And of course I didn't know the future trajectory he was gonna be on, right? So we didn't know that improv was gonna turn into like a feeding tributary. It was an end point of art. So we felt that the, the work was getting a little self-conscious. So then we said we should write about it. And that was probably the instigation of, well, we have some other topics we should write about it. And the next thing you know, we wrote a 1776 page primer that hit the high points that we were seeing at the time. I always say it's like a, it's like a, just a look back into what was going on in the late nineties, early aughts. So we would write individually and then send it to each other. Yeah. 
Well, it was the second. First, I got Truth and Comedy, and then I got You're in Jimmy's book. Those were really the thank you. What a compliment! Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm oh. very, very appreciative. It has been in print since 2006 and they keep printing small batches of it. And this blows my mind. I'm so honored. Um, I can't say that I could buy a yacht off of the proceeds, <laughs> but I can say I'm, I'm wealthy. I've become wealthy in the comp, not really the, I'm proud to have contributed. I've contributed through that book with Jimmy that's captured on paper, a moment in time of improv. Just beautiful, just beautiful. So um, I know you love to teach, but do you have, and you teach long form, mm -hmm. and, but you do you teach different aspects of long form. I mean, do you, you know, I look at your board and see what, when you go into a class, do you prepare a curriculum ahead of time still? And what, what do you kind of do with that? Like you're teaching well, a Brand new improv. Do you ever teach brand new improvisers? Oh yeah, I love. I love teaching brand new okay. improvisers. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I mean, I love teaching brand new improvisers. I love. I love teaching everybody. Actually, I love teaching very seasoned improvisers. The fun with early improvisers is getting them to buy in on this concept of letting go of pressure, and cutting bait on their own idea. I love working with level one and trying to help them very early learn how to really listen. If you can get people, the earlier you can get them absorbing. And then experienced improvisers, it's so fun to help them surprise themselves again. Really experienced improvisers forget how to surprise themselves. Like I went into our scene making sure like I wanted to be surprised and not be able to go, I know where this is going. Right, 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 right. So um, do I develop a curriculum? Yes, absolutely. I have my own sort of set of classes. I do like to teach the guts of form. I think if I can approach right, what, what form? Oh, the guts of form. Which oh, the is guts of form. Okay. Yeah, like all the guts of long form. If you can pull apart a long form, in my opinion, you're gonna teach. You're gonna touch on pretty much the most important co collection of um, attributes that you need to have to be a strong improviser. You're gonna touch on um, instinct. You're gonna touch on trusting yourself, trusting others. If you just approach it from the guts of form, I like to also it's kind of unusual. I like to teach monologues. I feel like monologues have gone by the wayside. When I grew up improvising, you would always see a personal, honest monologue pop out, always. And I miss that. Actually, speaking of Adam McKay, he did fantastic pop out monologues, just himself. He would just go out and just talk about a sandwich he just had and how the pickles weren't crisp. And that was disappointing. And, and that would fit into the long form and it would make perfect sense why he would share this random personal monologue. Or it would be someone would come forth deep and, and emotional and say, I'm going through a rough breakup and it's hard to be up here improvising. That kind of honest sharing of monologizing, I feel like has fallen by the wayside. So I like to bring that back. That's my personal quest. I'm going to, I like to bring back. Yes. I love monologues. I love doing monologues. I really, really do. They're efficient, right? What do you love most about them? Well, just being able to be honest and then seeing the uh, group uh, play out the monologue if we're doing that kind of a thing. But I, I recently went to a comedy club, not a comedy club, but a comedy night at a local theater. You know, it was a lot of, it was stand up, whatever. But I did a monologue there and I hadn't been on stage for several years now, Liz. And um, so for me, it was like, uh, it was very validating because they clapped and they laughed and they oh, cried God. and it was so much fun. 
And that's great. Um, yeah, I love that. That's a class I think that would be really fun to take the art of mon monologues. Yeah, I, yeah, I love that you had that experience because there's something so powerful about spontaneously sharing just from our heart, not in a scene, just us. I love that you had that experience. Um, I was lucky in that at IO, at this point I've taught, you know, all the levels and I, I don't say that bragging as much as I do. I'm proud of that, that like, you know, if someone says we need you to teach eight weeks on scene, all right. If someone says we need you to teach six weeks on game, okay. Um, but my personal preference is uh, form, bringing the most vulnerable part of yourself as you can into form. Monologue is a great technique for that. And then also if you, I work on techniques from the back line, like a million ways to help. And I've sort of categorized them. I think it's like 19 categories, you know, where you can come off that back line and do all sorts of like a tag out, a walk on, a thought bubble, a swinging door. I mean, a lot of this comes from the fact that backline techniques were sort of being developed and were still in flux in the early 90s. Like a running tag out didn't exist or it, maybe it existed, but it wasn't a popular technique like it is today. I watched running tag outs get developed where tag, 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 tag of a joke, 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 or deep, 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 or tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. And it was so fun to see the art evolve. And then like, I saw the very first Armando Diaz show. So a monologue. The very based, first? The very, very first. first. We all went, we all went, we were yes. all there. Right. And we all were like, oh, this will probably, this will be a good six week run. Wasn't that it, we didn't think we just didn't nobody conceived something could go for 20 years. Like, so I saw the first Armando and I was like, oh, that's cool. Working in monologue as form. And then I saw the first living room and this idea of true conversation as a foundation for improv. So my mind was lucky that I got taught early. Um, we haven't discovered it all yet. No. And so that's been a fun way to approach everything to say to every group ever. Like, I don't know, you guys, maybe you'll discover a new Armando. I don't know. That's wonderful. Yeah, it is. There's, there's just no way knowing what's going to happen next and, uh, it, it, and your energy and enthusiasm. So uh, where are you teaching now? What are you doing right now, Liz? Oh, interesting that you say that. I'm taking a little break, Marco. <laughs> I'm actually taking... I taught so much online over the pandemic and I, I bumped up the closest I've ever felt to being burned out teaching. I can't say I was completely burned out, but I needed to restore a little bit, you know, teaching can be draining. Right. And I'm sure, you know, when you, uh, I have to engage so much. And so I I'm taking a break and I'm working on a one person written solo show. Can you even believe it? Wonderful. I've been working on it for 20 years on post-its and I finally have an accomplishment. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing it uh, this summer around the Chicagoland at different theaters. I, it's called Tonight I Am My Mother. And it is about an hour five or so. Uh, and I go in and out of my mother's character and some other characters from my life. And it's totally scripted. So it's like a new terrain for myself. And then I'm going to get back into teaching in September. And I, I don't really, I don't have a website or I'm very bad at that. So I generally will 
pop up on social media every now and then not often to give this information out. I'm terrible about having a repository of information. Well, listen, you don't need to because you're so well-known and well-respected and loved by your Thank students. You. Thank really? you so much. It, that means a lot to me. Thank you. That's That means so much to me. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And it's true. Um, yeah. So improv has really changed a lot in terms of the world, the global ex expansion of improvisation. And we don't know where it's going or what's happening, but it is, it is such an art form. And of course, in my world, it's therapeutic because that's, it just is, you know, we've got yeah. all these principles like mindfulness, acceptance, and, uh, and it's just no telling what else we can do with it. I agree. I think that improv is it, its ability to expand and infiltrate every arena shouldn't astound me, but it does. And I love it. Way back when I remember thinking, oh, improv's crested in like 1997. I was like, ah, improv's crested. You know, <laughs> I, I joke that, um, there's uh, someone's opening up improv theater on Mars and they're waiting for the liquor license. Like that's where <laughs> improv is headed. It's just, it goes everywhere. And what you said, like it's in therapy, it's therapeutic. I work with uh, a corporate attorneys that, in, that appreciate improv um, to help nimbleness and be more extemporaneous in the courtroom. I work with um, uh, some startup companies where improv is all about instant creation and we'll deal with it in a minute if it's not quite right. And that's the startup world, instant creation, and we'll deal with our problems as they come. So there's a parallel to improv. And I like to say that, I mean, there's a parallel to improv to so many different industries and arenas. I like to say that improv is the molecule that bolts onto anything and makes it better. That's my experience. I love that. And using the word experience, now I had all these great notes that I had little quotes of yours, but there was something you said about experience really wasn't as important as supporting or it wasn't as... Oh, you mean like having the... Ex you don't need to have a long resume of improv. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't. The, the cross-section of experience you can have a veteran improviser playing with someone who's improvised a week the cross the point that they cross is in their ability to uplift one another if you come in with an attitude of uplifting it doesn't matter there's no need to worry that that person maybe has been playing for a decade and you're new if you uplift if everyone comes off that back line with a mindset of uplifting rather than competition tearing down winning or ego we will create something together. It doesn't matter. I mean, I learned that in the movie, Don't Think Twice, where we had, yes. I coached the, the ensemble. Some of them had a lot of experience and some of them had never improvised. The cross place is just support each other. And they did great. They did great. You don't want to sit on that back line and worry about your resume because it doesn't matter in that moment. What matters in that moment is are you getting out there and, and helping? Well, you have uplifted me today and oh. this experience has been so awesome. I hope we get to meet another time and maybe do a follow-up podcast in a while because I just learned so much speaking with you and had so much fun playing with you. I really appreciated doing a scene with you. So thank you so much, Liz. And um, 
I wish you well, and I'm glad you're taking some time for yourself. That's really important. Thank you so much, Margo. I enjoyed this oh immensely. And as you can tell, I have no trouble just going on and on about improv. I can just go on and on. You're so sweet to give me this platform. I so enjoyed meeting you too. Jay speaks so highly of you. It's so nice to uh, to cross paths. Thank you. Till we meet again, Liz Allen, thank you again for being our guest today. You're welcome. Thank you, Margo. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.